0: DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen Dr. Bunsen serves as the faculty chair of the Catholic Distance University He is also a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology He is the author or co-author of over 45 books including The Pope Encyclopedia the Encyclopedia of Catholic History, the Encyclopedia of Saints, the Encyclopedia of U.S. Catholic History, and Pope Francis. Dr. Bunsen serves as a senior contributor for EWTN. The Doctors of the Church, the Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Bunsen, thank you for joining me.
1: A great joy to be with you, Chris.
0: I am looking forward to learning more about this doctor of the church who was brought forward by the church very recently. And of course, we're talking about St. John of Avila.
1: A doctor only since 2012, named at the same time as uh, Hildegard of Bingen, of, of whom uh, you and I have spoken often, mm-hmm. and I know for whom you have a, a particular interest, in a way, uh John of Avila was overshadowed when he was named a doctor of the church by Hildegard of Bingen, which I think he would have appreciated. Mm -hmm. And and I say this because he was a saint. He was now a doctor of the church. He was called the master in his lifetime uh, for reasons that we're going to get into. But he seemed happy to be overshadowed by his contemporaries. And what a remarkable group of contemporaries it is. He was a an influence a guide and a mentor to ignatius loyola Teresa of avila john of the cross peter of alcantara john of god and francis borgia some of the single greatest figures of the catholic reformation in spain in the 16th century which is why i think he was somewhat overshadowed historically uh, but is finally earning his due as a doctor of the church
0: yeah, extraordinary. I mean, I don't think we can overstate his influence on the spiritual life, and maybe of, of us all, because of the contributions he made in the lives of all the people you just stated.
1: Yes. Yeah, in particular, I think the two that uh, are really worth noting are Teresa Vavila Avila and, and Francis Borgia, two very different personalities. Teresa of Avila, as we'll talk, came to him. Uh, For spiritual advice, for validation and authentication of what she was doing in her own spiritual life and her own spiritual writings. Francis Borgia was somebody who underwent a a transformation morally and spiritually under the influence of John of Avila. And of course, both went on, Teresa in particular, uh, to be one of the towering figures in the history of the church's mystical life spirituality, and uh, holiness.
0: Well, let's talk about what formed him in his early years. Where is he from, and what was his life like?
1: Yeah, uh, as is uh, so often the case, as we've discussed over the many episodes now of the Doctors of the Church, John was born into a family of deep faith. Uh, His parents were conversos. In other words, they were from a Jewish convert background. And he grew up in Extremadura, uh, near the city of uh, Toledo in Spain. Probably around January 6, uh, 1499, it has always been noted that he was born on the Feast of the Epiphany. Mm. And his uh, parents, uh, who were older, had always hoped to have a child, uh, but they never managed it. And then they took a pilgrimage in honor of St. Bridget, and their prayers were answered. And of course, in in gratitude, uh, they raised their son uh, in in an atmosphere, truly, of of deep faith. And John displayed two characteristics that were going to be consistent throughout his life. One was a a brilliant mind, a very fine mind. And and then the other was uh, a love for the faith, in particular, uh, for the Eucharist. And thanks to the generosity of his parents, uh, he received a great education and was sent to the University of Salamanca uh, to study law at what seems now the improbable age of 14. Mm. But right from the start of his education, he was feeling called to something else, drawn to something deeper than just the study of law, and that was to a life of prayer, a life of giving himself truly to Christ. And so he uh, returned home from school and gave himself over to prayer, to discernment. And he lived at home, but he was practicing really deep austerities and was trying to discern what exactly Christ wanted him to do. As is often the case also with other doctrines of the church that we've talked about, the, the clincher for him that, yes, he was, in fact, called to the priesthood came from a seemingly random encounter with a Franciscan friar who was traveling through his home city and who stopped and talked with him and told him, no, you are called to the priesthood and you must go. And that's what he did.
0: What do you suppose caused him to listen so deeply to that instruction? I mean, he sounds as though, I mean, brilliant, intellectually what I mean what would cause him to leave what could have been a very prosperous lifestyle
1: hmm I think my my opinion in this is that by the time he met the Franciscan friar he was already very clear in his mind what he was being called to do but it's so often the case he needed that nudge that encouragement from an outside and unexpected source the encounter with the Franciscan friar, one can term providential, uh, I would agree with that. I think it truly was the the final call from God to one, to yes, this is what you're supposed to do. And it it probably was so unexpected that his heart listened to it uh, in a way that uh, other people around him might not have been able to reach. And Thank heavens that he did respond to that because the timing was exactly right for him. That uh, they sent him to Alcala uh, where they had a a wonderful seminary there and he was able to study directly under the influence of one of the great Spanish Dominicans by the name of Domingo Soto, who was a, a grand theologian. And he left a great mark on Juan who in turn left a great impression on his professors, and he proved a very popular seminarian, uh, but also one who was known for those two things, of his genius, but his love for the faith, and in particular, the love for the Eucharist.
0: Now, if I have my dates straight, in my head, Matthew, the, there was something just a couple years before this call to the priesthood that's occurring in Germany. And it's a date, uh, October 31st, uh, yes. was it 1517? 1517.
1: 1517, yes. yes. <laughs> You're absolutely right. We can even go back a little farther than that uh, to something else that had just happened in Spain. And that, of course, was the culmination of the Reconquista in 1492. Oh. And that was the final defeat of the Moorish kingdoms and the reunification of Spain for the first time uh, in almost 700 years. And of course, in 1492, we also had the incredible discovery of the new world by Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. In Spain, you had the movement toward formal unification. You had Spain taking her place as one of the grand empires. And then, as you point out, right in the midst of that, in 1517, came Martin Luther and the start of the Protestant revolt or the, the Protestant Reformation. Spain was very determined to be the bulwark for the Catholic faith in Europe. Remember that we, as we have to, that Spain was part of, by alliance, by marriage to the Holy Roman Empire, and therefore uh, recognized itself as absolutely crucial to the very survival of Catholicism of the authentic church in the face of the the progress and what seemed to be the relentless march of Protestantism in Europe. So Spain on the one hand was faced with internal crises that we're gonna talk about, of trying to reunify a once broken peninsula. And on the other, trying to defend against the spread of toxic, heresies in the form of Lutheranism and then Calvinism. So a lot was going on in the background, uh, and this was the environment in which John was ordained uh, in 1526.
0: Now, I, I don't intend to sound so maybe overly dramatic, but couldn't it be said that here he is rising up in this area of Spain at this particular time when literally a tsunami is hitting the church in this Protestant revolt, and in the experience of the people. I mean, he is just coming into the, that full awareness through teaching, through prayer, through everything, just as it's making its crest.
1: Yes, uh, that that's absolutely true. But here's what makes John so interesting. And that is, while he was in seminary, both of his parents died. in, in just a very short time after each other. So he was ordained in 1526 and said his first mass in the very church where his parents' funeral, their funerals had been held. Mm. Now, of course, that meant that he inherited uh, extensive properties and money and and status. And he was, as was also the custom of the time, uh, encouraged by friends to mark his ordination with a banquet for all of his friends. John, however, had a different approach to this. He threw a party, but instead of inviting his friends, he wandered into the streets of his city Mm -hmm. and invited a dozen, 12 poor starving men to dinner. He washed their feet and then all of the incredible feast that would normally have gone to friends celebrating the the triumph of his ordination. It went to these poor men. John then uh, sold his house, donated the proceeds to the poor, and presented himself with the hope of going off to Mexico, to the New World, to labor and give his life as a missionary.
0: He could have done so much, I mean, within the, the sanctum, inner sanctums of the church, and yet he continued to want to encounter the poor. He kept wanting to touch the, the, the heartbeat of the church, didn't he? He
1: did. And, and this is one of the antidotes, I think he understood this, to Protestantism, that we have to go back to the authentic gospel to live as Christ called us to, to love the sacraments, but also never to forget the poor, the defenseless, and the weak, and then to take that gospel, that authentic gospel, out into the world. In this case, uh, he wanted to serve in Mexico. In fact, he uh, presented himself to the recently named Bishop of Tlaxcala, uh, a Dominican by the name of Julian Garcez, uh, who was just trying to put together a diocese in Mexico. And he ex- readily accepted uh, John's offer to become one of his priests. This, of course, uh, turned out to be uh, a desire on the part of John, but God had something else very much in mind.
0: Well, what would happen?
1: Well, he went to uh, Sevilla. And it was there that uh, he expected to prepare himself for the the trip to the New World. While he was there, he became friends with a priest by the name of Father Fernando Contreras. And this father, Contreras, was extremely impressed uh, with the the prayerfulness and the homilies of his young guest, this, this young priest. And he then went and made a suggestion to the archbishop of the city, or the archbishop of Sevilla, Alfonso Manrique de Lara y Solis uh, in 1528. And the archbishop summoned John and asked him to forego going to the new world and instead take on what the church at the time may have considered an even more important task, And that was rather than sail to the New World, he wanted him to remain in Spain and revive the faith in Andalusia. What was so unusual about that? Well, Andalusia had been the very heart of Moorish Spain, of Muslim Spain. And the church was in dire need of renewal. And what was... What had happened, basically, was that with 1492 they we were just talking about, with the end of the Reconquista in Spain, Catholics were completely free to worship. But also, the, the, the church in those regions needed renewal. It needed revitalization. And John, taken aback by the offer, felt uh, committed to his promise to the bishop of Tlaxcala that he was really supposed to go to Mexico. The Archbishop of Sevilla, however, uh, polite, and replied very politely that uh, his reasoning, his argument with John uh, in why he should stay uh, may have been insufficient to entice him to stay, but his authority certainly would be as Archbishop.
0: <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, please agree with me, but if you don't... Uh. Yes.
1: (laughs) By virtue of his role as Archbishop, uh, he commanded John to obey in holy obedience. And John, of course, uh, ended his protests, accepted in complete obedience. Why is this uh, notable? Well, within the next years, John earned one of the other titles. I I mentioned that he's called the Master, but he's Mm -hmm. also called the Apostle of Andalusia.
0: We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas,
2: and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
0: Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. Or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church. The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. That obedience, that uh, in in submitting to that, ultimately, and and responding to the distressing guise of the poor in the church, and so many other things, make him a standout. He was able, even as the great homilist, to be able to teach through example, but also. He, on in a level through those homilies and through his spiritual direction. To be able to be called the Master, that's an extraordinary title.
1: It, it is. It, it seemed uh, very unlikely that he'd get that title when he delivered his first sermon um, to the people of Andalusia in July of 1529 uh, in the, the Cathedral of Sevilla. Uh, he stood there uh, up on the pulpit for what probably seemed like the length of a Bible. Uh, to the congregation, he stood there in silence because he was nervous and he seriously didn't wasn't sure exactly what to say. But then he submitted himself in obedience, not to what he wanted, but to what God wanted. And he, it is said, that he looked to heaven and said very quietly, "My God, if it is Your will that I should preach." Remove from me this great confusion that I am feeling. I beg this of you by the memory of your passion, for you know whether I seek aught else but your glory and the salvation of souls. And by every account, uh, he began to preach with incredible joy, but such eloquence that word soon spread across Andalusia of his preaching. And... Such were the the size of the, the congregations that would gather that the doors of churches had to open hours early because of the number of people who would start gathering there. And the doors of the churches were never shut during his masses because so many people were stretched out the door of the church, eager to hear him. But what did he do? He finished every sermon with plea and the admonition for those who heard his voice to go as soon as possible to the sacrament of reconciliation. And then he himself would be available in the confessional for as many hours as were needed to hear the confessions of those who came to him.
0: Wow. And the thing about his homilies, from what I understood, Matthew, is that, yes, there is that blending and calling upon the Spirit to be his guide, Yet it was shored up with a study and an understanding of Scripture that I Amy mean, he prepared himself in a way by his studies, so that when it came time to preach to the people, it was it was the combination and allowing a grace to kind of uh, use what he knew. But the fact is, you still have to put the study in.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. and But here's, here's one of those ways, that, uh, as we saw with the, the, the lives of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, even disasters in his life, or seeming disasters, were turned by God in his life uh, into ways of shaping him. I'm referring to the fact that John, in his preaching, was always exhorting reform, renewal, care for the poor, uh, speaking out about the, the defenseless, the starving, the sick, and uh, often preaching against the, the wealth of the clergy, materialism among his fellow priests, and the, the total unwillingness of the rich in so many cases to even turn an eye toward the poor and the starving. Now, as you can imagine, that there were some priests who did not appreciate uh, his preaching, uh, they felt that uh, he was a threat to their status. This is also true with uh, some of the members of the wealthy classes and even some of the nobility in Spain. And as a result, he was denounced to the Inquisition and, and in 1531. And he was arrested and then investigated on the claims in a, that in a homily he had gone so far as to proclaim that the doors of heaven were closed to the rich. Mm. He spent an entire year in the jails of the Inquisition. Now he was at at no time as is often misunderstood by people regarding the Inquisition. He was never tortured, Uh, but he was under investigation. And in much the same way as Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross had faced accusations and examinations by the Inquisitors, John was examined and was fully acquitted. In 1533, the Inquisition declared him utterly innocent, that he had no stain upon his reputation, that his teachings were entirely faithful to the church. But what had he done uh, in that year? Instead of languishing, instead of feeling that he had been mistreated, that he had been uh, oppressed by those who wouldn't listen to him, Instead, he spent the entire year in the study of the Pauline literature, the letters of St. Paul. And he came away from this experience with so deep an understanding of the, the Pauline epistles that a, a priest very famously commented after one of his homilies that he had heard, quote, St. Paul interpreting St. Paul. Oh, wow. So this then became a springboard uh, for a new era for John's activities, that uh, he left Sevilla, went to Cordoba, uh, another of the great cities where the church had lived under uh, Moorish domination for centuries, and began preaching there. And his task there was to do a couple of things. One, he he preached to young people uh, to embrace the faith, to stop living in ignorance of the faith, He called on the wealthy to care for the poor, and then he begged his fellow priests, his fellow clergy, uh, to end their wasteful existence, their longing for status, their clericalism, and to live for the poor and the sick.
0: And, you know, that can't, as we've spoken about before, it can't be overstated how important that is, but he would also go on to establish schools. And, yes. You know that would later become seminaries and to educate. I mean, it the, the wholeness, the the totality, that the vision was incredible, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was. And and around this time, uh, he proved to, to be such an influence on the life of John of God, uh, who of course went on to establish the, the Brothers hospitals of Saint John of God, and then of course his influence on uh, Francis Borgia, who. Uh, had been a chivalrous nobleman, uh, obviously a member of the House of Borgia, which which had its own sort of historical baggage uh, John was able to serve as a spiritual advisor right at the time when Francis had undergone this this the, the famous story of his conversion of uh, seeing the decomposition of a corpse and recognizing what is to come for all of us. And that was, I think, uh, a turning point in, in Francis's life, but you still have to have somebody who can advise you, who can steer you in the right direction so that that repentance, that spiritual transformation, that metanoia actually takes hold and then builds you toward authentic holiness. And then, of course, it was around this time that uh, John became a spiritual advisor uh, to Teresa of Avila and then also uh, helped influence John of the Cross.
0: Let me see if I can keep this straight on a scorecard. Here we have uh, Francis Borgia, who would later become, yes, the general of the Society of Jesus. Yes. We know as Jesuits. We have Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Carmelites. Peter alacantara Franciscans. Mm-hmm. And a host of other charisms and orders that, I I mean, I've lost, well, I can't keep track on the scorecard.
1: Right. And we can say that uh, uh, John was one of the greatest supporters of uh, uh, Ignatius Loyola in the development of the Society of Jesus in Spain.
0: We'll continue our discussion with Dr. Matthew Bunsen on the life and influence of St. John of Avila in our next episode. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.